All this, said the Tisrach, is a question for the disputations of learned men. I will never believe that so great an alteration and the killing of the old enchantress were effected without the aid of strong magic. And such things are to be expected in that land, which is chiefly inhabited by demons in the shape of beasts that talk like men, and monsters that are half man and half beast. It is commonly reported that the high king of Narnia, whom may the gods utterly reject, is supported by a demon of hideous aspect, an irresistible maleficence, who appears in the shape of a lion. Therefore, the attacking of Narnia is a dark and doubtful enterprise, and I am determined not to put my hand out further than I can draw it back. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. And I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate your grace as we took a week off. Uh, life was busy. But to, just a reminder, today we are going to be talking about the third book in the series, The Horse and His Boy. But general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we're going to go on tangents into other stories that we enjoy. We'll try to give you a spoiler warning if we do anything that's too far out there. Uh, but today we're going to be discussing The Horse and His Boy, Chapter 8, In the House of the Tisrock. Parentheses, may he live forever. May he live forever. Um, so, yeah, I'll get into our summary. Uh, if you remember the end of last chapter, Erevis and Laz are hiding behind a couch, and the Tisrock and two men had just come in, uh, and they begin to speak. So the younger man sulkily addresses the Tisrock as his father and the light of his eyes, but then goes on to say how he's angry that the Tisrock allowed the Narnians to escape. He calls Queen Susan a handful of impolite names, and we learn that this man is Prince Rabidash, the man that she decided not to marry. The Tisrock says that he should let it go, but the prince is angry. He says he wants her, that his eyes are darkened because of her, and he's kind of melodramatic about it. The older man, the, vi the vizier, the visor, however you want to say that, uh, who Erebus is escaping from marrying, interjects with the poet's words about reason overcoming love. And the prince begins to violently kick the visor, who was bowed down on the floor. And after a while, the Tisrock told him to stop kicking him, and then Rabidash proposes that uh, the Tisrock gather his armies to invade Narnia and kill their high king and kidnap Susan. The Tisrock says that nothing would move him to openly declare war on, Mar on Narnia, the prince says if the Tisrock were not his father, he would call those the words of a coward. And coldly, the Tisrock says that if he were not his son, he would die a slow and painful death for saying that. In a more respectful voice, the prince points out that they could easily conquer Narnia, and the Tisrock agrees, saying these quote-unquote free countries are idle, disordered, and hateful to the gods. When the prince asks why they're allowed to survive then, the visor pipes up, pointing out that Narnia used to be ruled by a powerful enchantress who covered it in snow and ice, and if the current king conquered it from her, he must have powerful magic of his own. Rabidash says he believes this change came simply from the alteration of stars and natural causes, but the Tisrock says he believes this change came... Uh, interject say, saying it doesn't matter because the land is overrun with demons in the shape of talking beasts and it is even reported that the high king of Narnia whom may the gods utterly reject is supported by a demon in the shape of a lion the visor says it's good that such a wise leader as the Tisrock rules Kalerman, but the Tisrock says he wishes he could destroy Narnia once and for all Rabidash says he thinks he knows a way the Tisrock could reach out to take Narnia but still keep plausible and deniability if it all goes wrong. The Tisrock's interested to hear this. The prince says he will take 200 men and horses to ride across the desert that very night. Since Archenland has peace with Kalerman, though if, uh, they will be caught unprepared and easily taken. Then he will ride through the night to take care of Paravel, the castle of Narnia, and he knows the High King is gone to settle another uprising in the north, so the castle will be more easily taken. When the queen's ship arrives, he'll be able to kidnap her and take her with him. He'll even refrain from killing King Edmund to prevent there from being cause for open war. And then they'll send forged letters that Susan is happy in Kellerman and that she really loves Rabidash. Even if it doesn't work, they'll have conquered Archenland forever and have an outpost to build their troops and properly take Narnia. 
The Tizrock asks the visor what he thinks, and for a moment, the visor is scared to speak with the prince ready to kick him some more. But the Tizrock commands him to give counsel. The visor points out that even being a reckless plan, they would not likely kill him even if he captured it because it was undertaken for love. Plus, he thinks that the most likely part is that they'll conquer Archenland, and that will put them in a better position against Narnia going forward. The Tizrak agrees and tells his son to carry out the plan, but if it fails, the Tizrak will deny any knowledge and even allow him to be killed if necessary. Rabidash leaves at once to prepare, and the advisor and Tizrak stay, and the Tizrak tells him to wipe the conversation from his mind and that if Rabidash fails, he has 18 other sons and one less person who can conspire to kill him. The Tizrak has the visor go to prepare the musicians for his chamber and to fire one of his chefs for giving him indigestion. And then the Tizrak as well leaves, and the girls can finally breathe. <sighs> lots happened in this chapter, Kel. Lots happened in the span of lots of things not happening, but a lot of exposition. Oh, sure. Chapter. This is a bottle episode. For sure. Uh, the theme of this chapter is competing desires and chase. Oh, my chase, the delight of my eyes. Or, or wait, hold on. It's that's Rabidash talking to his father. Oh, my father, the delight of my eyes. This is how I want to be addressed from now on. Yeah, you uh, can keep going if you want. Yes, uh, I would. Uh, but uh, there's two. Yeah, you know, I. You know, no, no, no need for description here. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want your desires to compete with your desires for Courtney, but it's sure. It's, sure. I no, can out of your eyes on one podcast every other week. Yes. I, 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 I like this, this, uh, the way that we work this out. That's good. But the Rabidash, even though he, you know, declares this immediately turns back on this. C.S. Lewis makes sure that we know not actually, you know, his father's not actually the light of his eyes. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting thing that you'll see throughout this chapter. And this is, you know, why we opened up with competing desires as the theme is you see, you know, Rabidash is very motivated. Like he wants Susan, even though he hates her for all these things, but she's beautiful and he loves her, but he also despises her and thinks she's the worst. And he's also motivated about getting the throne. His rock is motivated by maintaining the throne. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize the throne. So, uh, and then the vizier, Kind of comes in and is playing playing his part to do whatever he needs to do to please the Tizrock, get rid of the sun. Yeah, he just wants to stop being kicked. Uh, to be fair, I think we all want to stop being kicked. I mean, sure, sure, but yeah, it it really does. I mean, going back to Rabidash talking about both his relationship with his father and and Susan, he is just toxic on every level. <laughs> Man, like he is the person who smiles to your face and then complains about you behind your back, full stop. And yeah, it's so, uh, yeah, first, he is super butthurt that his daddy didn't give him a faster boat that he could have escaped those escaping barbarians, the Narnians. Daddy, give me a bigger boat. This is how I read this whole chapter with him is oh, like spoiled you read him as Prince Charles, too. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I, I fully read him as Prince Charles. For sure. Uh, even though he was not alive at this point, it counts. Um, yeah, prophetic. But yeah, he's, I just, uh, he, he reminds me of like just super spoiled rich kid who like is used to getting his way in all things. And he's mad because if he had had a faster boat and, you know, his dad would have given that to him, then he could have gotten caught Queen Susan before they escaped. <clears throat> and then he goes on to this tirade. Uh, calling Queen Susan a lot of names. The only one that we get is false jade. And then C.S. Lewis is like, all the other descriptions like are not not nice to print. Like, yeah. What are some C.S. Lewis fans <clears throat> insults? Like, what could he have called her? Any, any I, come to mind? I, I, mean, I can only think a, of like talking beast. But he, he was an English professor. So that means he knows a lot of words. Like, And his vocabulary is pretty impressive, probably. Yeah, it feels like he thought of false jade, and then he was like, "Well, that's a pretty elegant one. I'll stop there." There, I will give this to the to the Calermines, man. They they know how to eloquently be super sassy and like yeah. put people down in very pretty words. I mean, I kind of wish he had <clears throat> like quoted a poem about like a backstab. Like basically, if he just quoted a country song, like just. Every country song is essentially a poem about a backstabbing woman or sure. 
how much you like beer and and boats and one or the other Um, and if he had gotten a bigger boat probably would have had beer on there uh he could have gone and got the backstabbing woman a complete country song so it's great but uh, yeah it's a like the you know he goes on this tirade and then the Tizrock. Okay, here's the thing. I think we probably I think we're going to agree on this. I'm I'm intrigued to hear your comments. Dude is arrogant, obviously, and he has some real pride issues. We're going to see you know some of his flaws. Dude spouts some wisdom in this chapter. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's just he, call it what it is. He surprised me. I expected him to be full like Disney villain, just adjustable. Yeah. And he ended up being pretty level-headed. And I mean, he basically, if you're a listener who's a Game of Thrones fan. I was about to, yeah. Yeah, he's basically. Uh, Tywin Lannister. Yeah, Ty, Tywin Lannister. And it it really, it was fun. Like, honestly, yeah. even though they're generally the bad guys of the story, the older guys here really do have a wizard. Both the Tisrock and Ahosha Tarkin mm-hmm. are both like spouting out some things that Rabidash actually needs to hear. Ahosha Tarkin. Stuff. Hey, reason is better than passion when it comes to yeah. dealing with something like this. Right. And Tisrock and- saying it's wiser not to take offense at guests leaving because like it's not going to do you any good. It's not worth it. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. And like you see the wisdom here. He's still not a good dude. He's still evil, but he is wise. Uh he operates in a real so I love the Tywin Lannister comparison because it's like Tywin, if you've never read it, is that he is a bad dude, but he's a really good ruler. Like he knows his stuff and like knows how to do things well. Uh and basically gets killed on fluke. Like, spoiler alert. Uh, sorry yeah, about it. it's. I mean, it's a funny way for him to die, but funny way. But with with the the Tizrock, like <clears throat> like according to him, you know, there are a lot of Tizrocks who have died before their time because of like jealous sons and because like they are foolish in essence. Uh, and him, like he is described as like an older guy, and you kind of have to be if you have eighteen sons, not including the daughters. He is also, uh, you know born most likely um and so it's like if this is the case dude's probably pretty up there in age and to survive that long in this kind of role you've got to be pretty smart yeah he definitely knows how to play his cards well he knows how to look at the situation and figure out what is going to serve me best in the long run as we'll see later um no doubt i mean in general like he's just kind of bad a like yeah he's he's not bad oh he is bad but he is not he's not an idiot you know he knows his stuff but he uh so he gives his son this wisdom like hey you know don't worry about these guests leaving uh you know compose yourself for the departure of guests makes a wound that is easily healed in the heart of a judicious host really good wisdom and then rabidash turns into one of my high schoolers at beach camp uh, where he goes, I shall die if I do not get her. Like, calm down, you angsty teen. Like, I've definitely heard teenagers say those exact words. And like, I, it's funny because I love how sassy the vizier is to like Rabidash. Like, you can tell there is no love lost in between them because uh, he's like, you know, I must have her like, uh, she's like Rabidash is like this false, proud, black hardened daughter of a dog that she is. I cannot sleep and my food has no savor and my eyes are darkened because of her beauty. I must have the barbarian queen. And Ahosha is like how well it was said by a gifted poet that deep drafts from the fountain of reason are desirable in order to extinguish the fire of youthful love. A really poetic way of being like, dude, you are way overhyped about this. You need to think logically and not with your... We're going to call it the crotch for now uh, and be like, dude, like you need to relax. And and then he kicks him uh, yeah. because the yeah. brain has no self-control. And, and the Tizrock lets him kick him for a few minutes before actually doing something about it. And yeah, and I know this is a hierarchical, <laughs> hierarchical society, but if Ahoshta is the prince's kicking block, like why would you want to be 
the vizier? Like, why not just climb to the level right below this so you don't have to be abused, but you can still enjoy being a rich, powerful person? Because obviously in Tashban, having any money is a good time. Sure. But, I mean, you're also going to see, like, the Tizrock does not openly kick the vizier. Like, he is, he's definitely makes threats, but he also, the vizier knows how to play that game. But the vizier also is going to attempt to send the prince to his death, like, knowingly. And he, like, skillfully maneuvers him to go. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he definitely sets him up to, uh, to be like, yeah, do what you want, bro. Like, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Bet. And so, uh, you know, he, he, the, the Tizrog is like, hey, stop kicking the vizier because as a costly jewel retains its value, even if hidden in a dunghill, so old age and discretion are to be respected even in the vile person of our subject. So it's like, hey, even though we rule this dude and he is subject to us, he actually has wisdom uh, that you need to respect and you need to understand. Yeah, it's it's a really fun both compliment and burn. <clears throat> it's way. a backhanded compliment for sure. Where he's like, he's comparing him to a dunghill, but yeah. a dunghill can still hold rubies. And uh, shows that they view all of their subjects as vile. As dung. Uh, it's rough. It's not a great look. And so basically what follows is the Tizrock is like, what would you have me do? And the son is like, I want you to burn Narnia to the ground and give Susan to me. And then the yeah, uh, Tizrock is like, heard a teenager say before, for sure. Yeah. He's so angsty teen in this. Uh, and he's like, burn Narnia to the ground. Give me Queen Susan. I must have her as my wife. She'll, but she'll learn a sharp lesson first. And then the Tizrock is like, no. <laughs> and there is nothing you could say that can convince me. Apparently there are things that he can say. Uh, but he's like, no. He figures out how to do it the, the polite way. Without um, open war. Yeah. And then he goes and just, look, it's common for kids to talk badly to their parents. But if you were not my father, I would say those were the words of a coward. And then the snapback of, if you were not my son, you would die a slow, painful death for saying that. It, <laughs> again, uh, t- uh, Tywin Lannister through and through. That's, yeah, cue, cue like anyone in like a rap battle going like, or like, dang, because this is like, this is a moment, and it, it like, C.S. Lewis even writes, it's like, after an awkward silence, uh it's like then you know we like we continue it's like yeah i'm your dad but also i'm the person that you have declared the deific ruler of everything so he's both really his father and god and king correct yes uh i see no issues that this could ever bring up uh especially when you're your god king father eventually passes away from old age. But if we learned anything from Anakin Skywalker, it's that if you put all the power in one person, he gets more done. It is more efficient, but also a little fascist, uh, which is not great. It moves too slow, Cal. I mean, I can't disagree with that point, but (laughs) if you're going to pick a dictator, make him benign, like I don't know, pick pick Padme. Padme for Emperor. Scenes with more power, which is also how it worked for Star Wars. Padme Amidala for Emperor of the Galaxy. She would have done great had you know. Uh, Natalie Portman for president. I'm fine with it. She's about to be Thor, so uh, I mean, probably. I mean, you know, it is what That's it is. But uh, we can talk about it later. Uh, we, and so he's like, no, like, I'm never going to declare open war on Narnia. And the prince is like, but why? Like, that makes no sense. We all hate these people. And the Tizrock is like, you're not wrong. Like, these little barbarian countries that call themselves free, which is as much to say idle, disordered, and unprofitable, are hateful to the gods and to all persons of discernment. Like, ah, oh, these countries that exercise freedom and, like, 
the, you know, their citizens can like act free and live free. Like it's detestable. It's, it's weirdly <laughs> anti-capitalist, but instead of going to that, I do have a question because this got me thinking about what, so obviously Kellerman is the big imperial power here. Correct. Yeah. What is, who is C.S. Lewis trying to make this an allegory for? Like, is this Britain or Germany? So I think it's, here's the thing. I think it's a mixture of Germany and the Middle East. Because you got to think, this is Britain in the 50s. Yeah. And Britain Britain in the 50s is the height of British imperialism. Sure. But Britain, like, he's never going to, he's also a monarchist. So it's not like C.S. Lewis is going to dog on the queen. Uh, Because it's just so on the nose for. I don't think it's in society, both like. You just think he's not aware enough to, to put that there. Yeah, I don't think he is intentionally dunking on the British Empire, but I think when you read that now, it for sure is, uh, where it's like, you you guys were kind of these people who, you know, acted this way, but, you know, Britain in this point of history is moving in, like, they, they're exercising democracy, whereas, like, you look at, like, they just conquered a fascist country in World War II, or, you know, maybe not conquered they defeated one with some help yeah. uh and then because Callerman is for sure like taking shots at the middle east who was a huge enemy at this point of britain uh i, I mean i think and you know going into the religious aspects of uh of you know those different countries i think he's for sure taking shots at oh yeah uh, countries mean, that definitely are not. going to be i mean this book really doesn't hit it that hard but in the last book of this series it's going to be a much more obvious allegory of like christianity versus islam absolutely in relation yeah, to it's, it's definitely present there but it it's good to you know that we get these little snippets from the tizrock in my opinion because that reminds us that he's still not the guy that you should be rooting for uh as opposed to being like okay cool he he has wisdom but he's still not you know, not a great dude. Um, it just would be funny if C.S. Lewis could write that and also not see that his leaders are the exact same. But yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. But yeah. So basically, the prince is like, well, if you hate these countries so much, why would you not conquer them? And the vizier is like, like they basically have this little discussion where they're like, well, up until like this year, like, or like, you know, recently, uh Narnia was covered in ice and ruled by a sorceress. Uh, and now that everything has been like the prince is like, yeah, but that's no longer the case. And they're like, yeah, but if the sorceress was defeated by someone, it's probably someone more powerful than her, like, which I'm not keen to go attack. Um <clears throat> it's it's pretty solid where it's like, hey, like someone at least has some pretty powerful magic uh, to be able to defeat this person. And then Rabidash is like, no, it came about by the stars and natural causes. It's like, what? <laughs> like, no. Uh, and dunk on scientism. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, it was a weird little insert there, but, and then you get our opening quote from this podcast where basically he says like, Hey, you know, Narnia is now ruled by like the people who defeated the white witch and they have talking demons uh, of animals and they have like half men, half, uh, you know, beasts uh, they have uh, and they're ruled by like some uh, that I think the quote is a demon of hideous aspect and irresistible maleficence who appears in the shape of a lion. Um, And it's really interesting hearing the descriptions of Narnia from a not pro Narnia source where you're like, if you were, if you grew up not like appreciating Narnia and like being like, Oh, Aslan, the great and powerful, but not tame lion, uh, you know, and like all, like it's good to be a talking animal. Like it would be kind of freaky. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it does bring up questions of, so how do they deal with the fact that they just had some of these half man, half beast and talking animals 
like in their court for a few days. But also, it, it is a really interesting insight into how how someone who isn't Narnia would look at it if they hadn't read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And sure. also, like, can you imagine if, like, we found out that Canada had talking animals this whole time? It wouldn't surprise me, honestly. I think it would probably only be, like, beavers, mooses, and maybe grizzly bears. But probably Those just are the only things that live there. Yeah, I agreed for sure. But caribou, but that's more or less just a small moose. Uh, and so meese. meese, sorry. Yeah. But like I yeah, it's a it's a weird, it's it's an interesting little like description of Narnia. And I, you know, I appreciate it coming like it's an interesting way to view it and be like, hey, like there are different perspectives that you have to consider. Um, and then the vizier is so good at just kissing up and of just saying the right things. Like he's, he's definitely gotten to this point, but like, it, because he is so good at saying the right things. Cause he's like, how blessed is Callerman uh, on whose ruler, the gods have been pleased to bestow prudence and circumspection where it's like, he's one, like he's dunking on Narnia by making Callerman seem better. And then he's giving the credit to the Tisrock. Uh, and the Tisrock is like, I do like that. That's true. Uh, and then he's like, every morning the sun is darkened in my eyes and every night my sleep is less refreshing because I remember that Narnia is still free. And it's like, ooh, that's, that's intense. I mean, this is where he starts to get into Disney villain territory. Sure. You definitely see his fascist side come out a little bit here and not just the wise, uh, you know, uh, the wise ruler who's been so for a long time. Yeah. So. And it starts to bug you that anything is outside of your rule. Maybe you should take some time to reevaluate yourself. Absolutely. And so hearing all this, the <laughs> prince decides, okay, cool. Like, obviously we're not going to go into open war. I need to change my tactic. And he tells of his, his father of his plan. He's like, Hey, I'm going to take 200 horses to overtake Archenland. Uh, and then from there, we'll be able to make our way into Narnia because King Peter will be gone. Edmund won't be back yet. Uh, and I will kidnap Susan and bring her back here and all is well. Um, all super and fun and chill. Super fun and chill. And I love the fact that old Tizzy brings up a lot of questions. Like he questions everything in this plan. Uh, he's like, what do you mean? Like, how is this going to work? Like, are, isn't it? probable that king edmund or you will lose your life and if that happens like we're at war uh what if they arrive before you because they could definitely do that uh how is this going to actually help me overtake narnia like all of these things um and he's asking a really good question uh how he actually is interested in the plan because he pokes at it to see if it holds water yeah and it doesn't like even they're poking holes in it. For me, they're like they're going to take two hundred horses to an entire nation's army. Like, I mean, just think, Kel, two hundred horses—that's like eight hundred feet. I was drinking water right when Chase said that, and I almost spit up. You you raise a great point. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that outcome. It is 800 feet. You're not wrong. Then you add the riders, it's like a 1,000. <laughs> that, that is correct math, except it's not. It would be, I don't think it is. It'd be it 1,200. Right. It'd be 1,200 feet because you'd have 400 feet from the 200 humans. Uh, but all this to say, like, 200 horses and riders, like, yeah, that's that's a lot for a small skirmish. But, like, is that enough to overtake an entire country? <clears throat> I mean, it becomes an issue of how big is Narnia? How big is Calermit? Like, especially because you never get any solid geography lessons, regardless of how many long walks we go on and how many times <laughs> we over cliff sides, over big spans of territory. Like, C.S. Lewis is not clear about how big a space we're dealing with. Honestly, Narnia doesn't seem like a very well defended place, like as far as keeping standing armies or 
like the fact that Peter would be up north fighting the giants, maybe, maybe, maybe 200 horses could do it, but maybe, but they still have to cross that huge desert uh, to like be able to make it work. And so it's like, this is, this is a bad plan. And like, you're assuming that you can travel through a desert faster than people can travel in a boat like it's they a, might be able to <clears throat> maybe I mean, they go straight north through the yeah and never eat or drink sure well, yeah. there's a uh oasis yeah but they don't know about it i think they do it's, no the only remember the, the only people that know about it are the are the salopad the raven uh who told the, the raven said to go the diagonal way to avoid the or the oasis because that would be where they fall would look for them first, and then I thought up the hill. I thought it was no you. I thought they wanted to go to the river in oasis because otherwise you have to traverse the entire desert without water. Like it's not a straight shot. Uh, like the way that Salopad takes them is not a straight shot uh, because it goes towards the river in oasis so that they can have water and not die in the desert. Do they go back into the desert after next chapter? For the readers, I apologize. I haven't read past next chapter, so I don't know exactly what... I'm pretty sure they make it out of the desert after next chapter. Like in chapter 10-ish is when they like get out of the desert, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, But all that to say, they still have to traverse the desert. They have to do all these things. So he's asking all these questions to his son, uh, trying to poke holes in these things that he put, he provides very meh answers for. Um, and th- the last one, uh, he goes, and how is the high king? Uh, what, if, what if the what if P- uh, Peter demands that we send back Susan, the barbarian woman, his sister? You know, and he goes, oh my father, be assured that he will not. For though the fancy of a woman has rejected this marriage, the High King Peter is a man of prudence and understanding who will in no way wish to lose the high honor and advantage of being allied to our house and seeing his nephew and grandnephew on the throne of Callerman. And then, uh, first of all, this is extremely presumptive of Peter. This is also extremely sexist. Uh, It's like, oh, you know, women, like always, like they're just go with the, they're going with the wind. She has no idea. Talk to Peter. Peter's going to be understanding. So, one of all, presumptive and sexist. And then Tisrock's response is, he will not see that, i.e. his nephew and grandnephew on the throne of Calerman. He will not see that if I live forever, as no doubt you wish. I love this answer. <laughs> it was just so funny. And again, it's followed by another really awkward response or another awkward silence because he's like, oh, God. Like, uh, I don't want my dad to die, but I actually do want my dad to die because I want to rule. Yeah, you can't say you want your dad to die. But also, I, I do love that the Tisrock is reading his own propaganda. Like, he's reading oh, yeah. into it. He's, <laughs> the Tisrock is, I, do you think the Tisrock refers to himself and then goes, may I live forever? Uh, like, he's like, uh, you know, I am your father, the Tisrock, may I live forever? Like, I mean... If he did, that would be kind of like a little prayer. And I feel like he is above praying because he's... He, he would God. pray to himself, more or less. He, he's related to Tash, so why would he... Uh, <laughs> would he <ever laughs> like cousins, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's a... it's. Just, I just love that line, and I just think it's really funny. And it's almost like the Tizrock is aware. He's like, obviously, I'm not going to live forever but you should at least be proclaiming that I will. And yeah. so like, it's like, get back on the party line, bro. Yeah. What are you doing here? Uh, and then he goes like Rabidash. Just, he, it's just so stupid. He's like, we're going to write letters as if they're from Susan saying like, Oh, I love Rabidash so much. And I have no desire to return to Narnia at all. He's the best. He's really handsome and good looking. And like, you know, forget everything else I had previously said about him. Because, quote, women are as changeable as weathercocks. Which I don't know what that is. But I think it's the little things you put on top of your house. Oh, like the little, like the the roosters that like fly with the wind. Okay. The weather rooster would be (laughs) the weather male rooster. 
<laughs> you don't you don't like the previous words. I just didn't want to say it again. Fair enough. I feel like we've said worse on this podcast, but better I to mean, be safe. Sorry. The the FCC better is going to be... come for us. They're no, gonna we, us... they're just, they're going to change our our G rating to a PG. We we've committed uh, to this being a family friendly podcast. We have. There's no way that this is Shrek level though, and like Shrek is still PG somehow. Shrek uh, shouldn't be PG, but should not. It should not at all. That's a but, conversation for another podcast. For sure. But he goes, so he's like, yeah, women are so fickle and they change all the time. Even if they don't believe her, they're still not going to dare come to Tashban to fetch her. This is so sexist and so presumptive again. Like, I think you mentioned, you said he was toxic earlier and I really like that description. He's such a tool. Yeah. I mean, in general, if, if you're a girl listening to this or guys too, like if you're in a relationship with anyone who talks about you like Rabidash talks about Susan who treats you like they own you who think they can manipulate you just get out just get yeah. out it's it's yeah. not a good place you can't change them it's not gonna work out agreed just go ahead and get out yeah so after this little toxic tirade of Rabidash uh Tizrock is like all right you know Vizier I'd love to hear your opinion on this what do you think and Ahosta again plays the game so well. He's like, how would I dare speak against your son uh, in something that could imperil his life? Like, how dare I do that? And then the Tizrock is like, undoubtedly you will dare because you will find that the dangers of not doing so are at least equally great. Uh, which again, I love these lines from the Tizrock because he's so self-aware of his own power. And he's also so arrogant. And I like... He's just fun to read. He really understands the role of king. Oh yeah, of like super emperor. He gets it. He he and he plays it well. Uh, and so, you know, the vizier's like to hear is to obey. And then basically uh, dunks on Rabidash again, uh, slightly in a way of basically being like, like he he wants to call his his whole thing stupid and mad, and it and he does. Then he's like, but. The gods have withheld from the barbarians the light of discretion, as that their poetry is not like ours, full of choice apophthegms. And I, I don't even know if that's pronounced correctly. Apophthegms? Uh, I don't know. I've never pronounced like 10 words in this very podcast. There's a lot of consonants in a row yeah, uh, in that word. Their speech is too enlightened for barbarians like us. Apophthegms, basically, I looked it up. It basically is just a really fancy word for idioms. Uh, which is another word for maxim, which is what he uses just after this. And so it's like their, you know, their poetry is not full of choice apothegms and useful maxims, but is all of love and war. Therefore, nothing will seem so noble and admirable uh, than such a mad enterprise. And then the, you know, Prince kicks him. Uh, but he's basically like nothing uh, like in, you know, the, Tizrock gets mad at him. He's like, stop kicking him. Nothing is more. And then he's like, hey, Vizier, keep going. Nothing is more suitable to persons of gravity and decorum than to endure minor inconveniences with constancy. Or he's, this is another dunk on his son where he's basically like, hey, ignore him. He's not that important. Keep going because you're smart. And the Vizier is like, to hear is to obey. And then they basically come to this conclusion, or at least this is what the Vizier presents. I'm 100% of the mindset that he is doing this to get rid of Rabidash where he's like, nah, like even if something happens, like, you know, it'll probably succeed, but even if it doesn't, and you know, something happens to uh, Rabidash, they're not going to kill him. And they're probably going to like, still just give him the queen anyway, because they're so impressed with his love uh, that he has for Susan. And that's what they value so much. They'll probably just give her to him and send her back to us. Yeah, his, his whole thing is like, look, this plan is crazy. We all know that. But what we haven't thought about is they might be so impressed by how crazy it is that it just might work. It just might work. Uh, and so it's it's this whole thing. Uh, and, and he's like, and at the end of the day, you know, if it does succeed, your son is right. And, you know, Archenland will belong to us at this point. And that is a good staging point for war. And the Tizrock is like, okay, like, I, you know, I respect that. 
And then he goes like to make sure that his son is aware of where he stands. He's like, I will not avenge you if you were killed. I will not deliver you if the barbarians cast you into prison. And if war arises because of these actions, you will lose your spot on the throne. I have 18 other sons. Like, don't think that you're that special. Which, savage, but <coughs> solid. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and as we see right after... So, Rabdash basically gets up and is like, all right, well, I'm going to go get the horses ready. Deuces. And he runs and does that. And basically, the Tisrog just turns to the Vizier and is like, look, don't think I'm too cold, but also I don't care if my son dies because I have so many others. And honestly, he's getting to the age where he's probably going to conspire to kill me. So having him out of the way, not a big deal. Not a problem. And then he's like, hey, uh, I need you to forget about everything you just heard. And the vizier is like, forget about what? And he's like, exactly. So yeah. they're, 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 they're super aware of how to, you know, put a plot together. Uh, and pretend like it was never their their thought. And it's a good uh, thing no one can overhear them right now. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if it's not like, he's like, there's no way that anyone could hear us, right? Like, not like two teenage girls hiding behind this couch. And they're, he's like, no way. Impossible. Inconceivable. Don't like, even chat. No. Let's just go. Yeah. And before so go, before they leave. Sure to kill the cook. Kill, so we'll we'll get to that because I do love this line. Like, and I, I think that's how like that's my last thing. But he goes, I I don't want you to think that like, you know, I hate my son. And I know you don't like my son. You're probably to ex- you're probably excited to see him fail and die. The Tizrock is very aware of the vizier sending his son off to let go and die. And he's okay with it. He's like, I know that you don't love my son. And man, again, Ahosha with the incredible sucking up here and Tizrock is for it uh he goes oh impeccable Tizrock in comparison with you I love neither the prince nor my own life nor bread nor water nor the light of the sun and then the Tizrock you would assume if I'm hearing this you'd go like okay like calm down a little bit and the Tizrock is like your sentiments are elevated and correct I also love none of these things in comparison with the glory and strength of my throne. If the prince succeeds, we have Archenland and perhaps hereafter Narnia. If he fails, I have 18 other sons. And, uh, you know, Rabidash is being a little bit of a butthole. So, like, and I'm fine if he leaves. Uh, and he's like, more than five Tizrox and Tashmen have died before their time because their eldest sons, enlightened princes, grew tired of waiting for their throne. And so he's basically like, hey, I love all the flattering you just gave me. Keep doing it. This is why you're my vizier. Uh, and also, you know, Rabidash kind of sucks. So it is what it is. But I've really been thinking that we need more men around here that say yes. Yes. I like your attitude, Ahosta. Uh, you sucking up little vile, like worm, uh, you dunghill. <laughs> but, uh, then basically the chapter ends where he's like, Hey, go do all these things. But before you go call back the pardon we wrote for the third cook, uh, Basically, I guess they had like previously pardoned this guy and they're like, nope, fire him. Because I feel within me the manifest prognostics of indigestion, which is a fancy way to say, I got a tummy ache. I need you to fire this chef. Mm. Don't you just love when you have a tummy ache and it leads you to uh, send your son to be murdered? (laughs) You know, when I get hangry, it happens, man. Like, it is what it is. Chase, do you have anything else to say before we dive further up and further in? I think I'm good. You want to start us off? Sure. So my further up and further in today is just generally about the way politics and power play out in a story like this. Um, in Game of Thrones, there's a line uh, from Tyrion. It says, a wise man once said, the true history of the world is the history of great conversations and elegant words. So in many contexts, even at times in a representative democracy like the one that we both live in, uh, the real decisions that move nations, shape foreign policies, start and end wars are made by small groups of powerful people with their own ideas and agendas at play. And Rabidash here feels like a Game of Thrones character in the way that he plays the politics and trickery of his plan, uh, also just the recklessness of it. 
And then again, the Tesseract also feels like a Game of Thrones character as he allows his son to put hundreds of thousands of lives at risk, partially in hopes that he fails and one more threat is removed. It's this stark reminder that the human level of politics is never far away when we see big movements in nations and and big pieces of the, of the meta story so the bigger story that spans countries rather than just people uh have movements and that there's always more layers than what the public sees uh this is great for dramatic stories like this where we get a look behind the curtain to see well why did that country declare war on that country well it was actually just because the prince was butthurt about a minor thing but whatever public thing that they put out oh no he rebelled and this and that and or it was a strategic move like whatever you want to put to it 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 really is this more simple human reason um and it's just a reminder both for the need for accountability at all levels of the world we live in and reminder that we ourselves don't always act for the real reasons we reveal and it was an interesting layer to the conversation here that felt true to both our own world, as we talked about, like, with what country <clears throat> is this even an allegory for, but also for a lot of the different stories you read, this is how the politics of nations play out. Yeah. Mine is similar on Unknown. You know, it's bound to be considering that so much of the chapter is dominated by political conversations. Um, but my further up and further in is the idea of personal glory versus familial legacy. So you're going to see this trope uh, in a lot of stories uh, generally occurs with the main villain of a series. Uh, and it deals with this idea of creating and obtaining glory for oneself being at odds with protecting and empowering those who will succeed that person in the future. So if you, if you look throughout history, good leaders try to do two things. They try to both accomplish the tasks and goals set before them. So maybe that's leading a country, maybe that's, you know, finding a certain thing, they're, you know, taking their people to a certain place, whatever it is, they're trying to, uh, you know, accomplish the things set before them. And then they're also trying to prepare others to take things further than they ever could. So think Moses, he's tasked with leading his people out of uh, Egypt, out of slavery, uh, into the promised land. Uh, but he is not the one that actually takes them into the promised land. He prepares Joshua to go and take his people to where he couldn't. He goes and does more than Moses ever could. Uh, but uh, if someone is only self-interested, they're going to hyper-focus on the aspects of the, of the former, of accomplishing tasks, of leading, of creating power and growing their own power. And they're going to let the aspects of continuation through others all they're going to let that all fall to the side. So think Palpatine in Star Wars. He wants all the power for himself, and so all of his, uh, all of his, like his Sith apprentices that get too strong, he does away with. He does not want them to conquer. Uh, he even like think uh, in you know if spoiler alert, think about you know in Return of the Jedi or you know depending on what your opinions are of Rise of the Skywalker, both kind of things happen where he says, hey, if you strike me down, I'm actually going to become more powerful, so you should kill me, because his force spirit will do all these things. It, it gets real into Star Wars fandom, but you know, he, his goal is his self being in power, not creating an everlasting empire. Uh, think Rajal Ghoul from uh, the Batman, you know, comic books and movies, where he is this guy who keeps living and keeps doing these things, but he ultimately wants power for himself, not for his daughter, not for the rest of his people. And then it's why he is the one that's in control of these, uh, you know, points of, uh, of eternal life, more or less. Uh, think Omni-Man. If you just recently watched the Amazon Prime Invincible series or read the comics, think Voldemort. Uh, Voldemort, if he puts other people in charge and is a better delegator, probably wins this war a lot better if he was a better planner, but instead he is, doesn't trust anyone and only trusts himself. Uh, think this is the reason why empires like that of Genghis Khan fail when great leaders and like huge, powerful leaders die because who's going to succeed them? Who's going to take care of them? Uh, who's going to take things further once they're dead? And the answer is 
no one. It's generally a fight for that same power and no one can really handle it as best as the person who was originally in charge. And, you know, Chase put a little note in my uh, under my further up and further in asking, are you saying that fascism as a system is doomed to fail? The answer, yeah, because like everyone is greedy and wants power. And, you know, that's if you want, if you have someone who has all the power, they're not going to want to share it. And then when they die, how's that power going to be distributed? It's, it doesn't work. Right. And so it's this uh, common trope that you see in a lot of fiction uh, of trying to balance your own strength with continuing your legacy through other people. But Chase, now that we've reached the end of this podcast, before you go, uh, I feel within me the manifest prognostics of uh, inclination towards hearing more about this podcast. So can you tell our listeners uh, where how they can help us uh, reach more people? Yes, yes. The best way to ease your system in that way would be to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, wherever you get podcasts, really, and to follow and like and leave a review and download. Uh, this podcast, the Chronicles of Podcasts, wherever you find them, and also to share it with your friends and tell them about it, and also to follow us on Instagram at Chronicles of Podcasts, where we post whenever we have new episodes out, and we love for you to interact with us there. Uh, yeah, it would be the best thing to pro- prognosticate your your manifestations of, of indigestion. Uh, <laughs> as you, as listeners, as you no doubt hope for that this podcast lives forever, we will see you next week. Or you'll hear from us. May you live forever. May you live forever. I mean, there's some interesting both sidesism on this, this one that sets up the last battle real nicely. Oh, yeah. God is the right God, Kel. Uh, Aslan. Uh, but if apparently if you're C.S. Lewis, as long as you just do the right thing, then it doesn't matter. Well, you know, anything good done for Tash is also done for Aslan. But yeah, let's throw in throw in any other random, you know, you know, what? who's the God of Reap a Cheap in the Mouse Clan? Uh, the God of the uh, of the the Teller mean or is it is it? Whatever the people in Prince Caspian are, Teller. I mean, as we learn in this chapter, all the talking animals in Narnia are just demons. So it's about bird. Yeah, uh, it makes sense.